0: Amen. thank you, Jonathan. So, I did introduce myself before. Good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, my pleasure to be with you in this in this uh, role this morning. Also, uh, we continue in a series in the bu- in the Book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a major prophet. We call them a major prophet because it's a really long book and not a short book. And so, he's one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. But there are a lot of beautiful words, particularly in the last section of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40. And so, we're just making our way through. And uh, I've slowed down because I just can't get over thinking, oh yeah, we need to talk about that too. Oh yeah. And so even this morning you'll see printed for you Isaiah chapter 41 and also chapter 43. But we're not going to get to chapter 43 this morning. And so if that's a disappointment to you, guess what? You can come back next week and we'll talk about it then. Okay? So come back and uh, because it is a particularly beautiful passage as well. But there's so many of them here uh, that I... Um, that I just am getting a little overwhelmed and don't want to skip anything. It's a little bit of a mess this morning in other ways. I want to read verse 5, even though it's not printed for you. That's my fault, not anybody else's. I put that down wrong, and so just bear with us this morning. As we try to read, beginning in Isaiah chapter 41, uh, just a plug, it would be probably easier for you to bring a Bible in case something happens that we've not planned for, because then we can look at it together. But otherwise, we will read Isaiah chapter 1 and then verses 5 through 16 uh, for our text this morning. So let's uh, read together from God's Word. The prophet Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, and then let them speak. Let them draw together, draw near for judgment. For the coastlands have seen and are afraid The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. And then verse 6. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammers, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen... The offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing And shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. And then again, just in case we haven't been paying attention, verse 14, Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth, and you shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Let me ask this question. What keeps you up at night? What um, what are you prone to lose sleep over? I asked the question because this section of Isaiah is dominated by the command, fear not. You'll see there, we read it three times in those verses, in verse 10 and then again in verses 13 and 14. If you keep going, it's why I coupled this passage with Isaiah 43, because in chapter 43, verse 1 and verse 5, that particular text is bracketed by the same command. But then again, in chapter 44... Verses 2 and verses 8. So by my count, that is seven times in this particular section of Isaiah's prophecy where he is dealing with the reality of our fear. Do not fear. Or some variation of that is the most oft-repeated command in the Bible. Think about that. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that we have a particular problem with fear. But it is a command, which means that our fear is a problem. That the only way forward in the spiritual life is to overcome your fear to one degree or another, to be overcoming it. One consequence, we could say it this way, is one consequence of growing in faith is becoming less afraid. So do you want to live less afraid? Do you want to live unafraid? Or maybe that's we shouldn't, maybe that's too high of a mark to strive for this morning. Maybe we could just say, Oh, if I could just live less afraid, right? If I could just make some progress, and so if you want to live unafraid, if you want to live less afraid, that's what this whole section of this book is about—about about how to become people who can look to God and trust in Him and learn to live unafraid. But if you want to do that, if you really want to be a person who can obey this command, which God's intend—again, it's a command which God intends for us to obey—then, then there are three things. If you're going to do that, there are three things you have to do, and they're just the three points of the outline that I've given you. In the insert there in your worship folder, if you're going to live unafraid, you have to, one, commit to God's mission. Secondly, you've got to comfort, excuse me, confront your idols. And then thirdly, you have to comfort your heart with God's promises, because that's the pathway to living unafraid, or at least, at the very least, living less afraid. To commit to his mission, and then confront your idols, and finally, comfort your heart with God's promises, and the particular promise this morning here, I am with you, right? And so let's just walk through the text together using that outline as a guide for us this morning. First, if you want to live unafraid or at least just less afraid, you have to commit yourself to God's mission. Look there in verses 8 through 10 where he says, he addresses his people, he says, "'You, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend,' whom I took from the ends of the earth, saying, you are my servant, fear not, he says. In other words, he's connecting the command to not be afraid, because he's with us, with, with what he intends for our lives. We have a mission. And the mission requires that we live unafraid. And, and ironically, not only does the mission require that we live unafraid, but if we begin to live, if we begin, if we're, excuse me, if we find ourselves afraid, it might be because we've gotten off mission. Dorothy Sayers famously described the times we live in, although she wrote this, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago or even more. She said, in the world, it's called tolerance, but in hell, it's called despair. Here's how she describes it. It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there's nothing for which it would die. Now, in contrast, FDR said, and this is printed for you there, courage is not the absence of fear, rather the assessment that something else is more important than the fear. And so, by his wisdom, the best way to live unafraid is to find some greater purpose that grips your heart and to give your life to that, to give your life to some great ideal or cause in the service of it can subvert your fear. But if you believe in nothing... If there's nothing for which you would die, don't be surprised if you find yourself afraid. God reminds Israel here in these verses that He has taken hold of them. Do you see that, verses eight and nine? That He chose them, that He's called them from the farthest corners of the earth, and He said, You're my servants. He's saying, Look, I I have a special purpose for you. You're mine. You're mine. And now, because I have made you mine, you're to make me, and my purpose is yours. God has a mission. God has a mission. And for that mission, he has a people. That's you and me, by the way. So Emil Bruner says the church exists by mission just as fire exists by burning. If there's no burning, there's no fire. If there's no mission, there's no church. Chris Wright said it a little differently. He's written a bunch about the mission of God and the church. He says, it is not that God has a mission for his church in the world. It is that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. And so if the church ever exists for itself and not for God and for his mission it ceases to be the church at least the way it's defined in the Bible and this is what this means for you and I personally if you are one of God's people then you are part of his mission you personalize this here in verse 8 you are God's servant you are the offspring of Abraham verse 8 The Apostle Paul described his life this way. He said that he was going about taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus had taken hold of him. And I like that imagery. I grew up on the NIV, and so I still struggle sometimes to reconcile the ESV. And the the, the NIV is just that. I'm taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. In the ESV, it says, I make Jesus' agenda my own because he has made me his own. Either way, it's kind of sing-songy, right? The way the author does it, because it's it, there's the the two words are meant to to really mirror one another. Jesus took hold of me, Paul says. He made me his own. He changed my life. I was living for myself, and then Jesus came into my life, and now everything's different. Now I live for Him. That's what Paul says. It's true of every single person who has been arrested by God's grace and God's purpose. And so it should be true for you and I as well. Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracies, warned of what he called Gospels of Sin Management. Gospels of Sin Management that reduce the gospel to the message that you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die, which is, of course, good news. But the problem is, is it's a reduced version of the true gospel that doesn't touch all the other parts of your life. The gospel in its fullness is the good news that in Jesus Christ you can be reconciled to God. But to be reconciled to God means that your heart becomes realigned with his heart. And what is his heart? His heart is for his agenda in the world, and so if your heart gets realigned with his heart, guess what? Your heart gets realigned to his agenda and his mission in the world. We were made in God's image, remember. These kids who came up here and stood before you this morning, they are kings and queens of Narnia, but not just Narnia, of the world. Which is why those books are so powerful. C.S. Lewis is reminding us we were made for great things. Which is why I want to look them in the eye and say, you're going to change the world. Because every single one of us are meant to live with that kind of calling and purpose in our life. We're made in God's image to reign with him. sin, sin made us consumers. And consumers take instead of taking responsibility. But salvation is the undoing of our selfishness. It is the reversal of my me orientation to put me back on mission in the world. But he's also reminding us, not just of the fact that there's a mission that they, and by virtue of our connection with Israel, we are called to, but he's also reminding Israel why he took hold of them. He's he's reminding them of the nature of the mission. He says in verse eight, he calls them his servants, but then he says the offspring of Abraham. And Abraham, remember, was blessed so that he could be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That through him, the kingdom of God would spread across the whole world. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls you and me. If you believe, he calls us children of Abraham too. And In doing so, he combines faith and mission. He says you can't have faith without mission also. Okay? You with me? There is no faith that there's not mission. And you can't do the mission without faith. But those two things always go side by side. By believing, you de facto belong to God's worldwide agenda and everything else your family, your home, your work, your money, everything else becomes integrated into what God has called you to for his greater purposes in the world. That's what it means to live as a person of faith. If you remember the old movie or the Broadway play, The Lion King, uh, it's a great story. I, I love this story and it's, been, it's, it's a powerful story for many reasons, but probably my favorite part in the movie, which really didn't land on me until I saw the show years later, but if you remember Simba, who is the rightful heir, his father dies in a tragic accident that's set up by his uncle Scar because he desires the throne for himself. And Simba runs away and he meets up with new friends, um, Pumbaa and Timon, and he adopts a Hakuna Matata lifestyle. Hakuna Matata, right? Can we sing it? Means no worries, right? For the rest of your days. He just starts to live into this, you know what, let's just chill and hang out. It's cool, brah, yeah, we got, I mean, whatever, however you want to characterize that. It's kind of like, no worries, don't, don't, be, don't be tied up with, just, let's, just, let's just hang out and have a good time. Uh, but under his absence, the kingdom falls into disrepair. Uh, Scar, who's taken the throne, ruins everything. And a childhood friend of his, another, a lioness named Nala, finds him. Uh, as she's hunting, and she reminds him of who he really is, and she's confused by his, why, you know, why haven't you come home? What have you been doing all this time? And he says, oh, "Kunamatata, don't worry about any of that stuff." And she gets really frustrated with him, and she says, "No, but you're the king, and we need you. You're the heir of the kingdom." And Simba just dismisses her because he's afraid. And then, if you remember, he has a dream, and his father comes to him in the dream. And uh, in the clouds, and here's what his father, the king, says to him. He says, Simba. James Earl Jones, right? Simba. <laughs> I can't even do it. Okay, I could I try, but I, I, know, I can't. That, my registry doesn't go that low. My register doesn't go that low. Simba, he says, you have forgotten who you are. You are more than you've become. And this is exactly what Isaiah is doing with Israel here with us. He says, you are the offspring of Abraham. You've forgotten who you are. You're more than you've become. Don't settle for a life of comfort and ease. Hakuna Matata, there's no life in that life. Remember who you are. Remember that you were meant for something bigger. And for that bigger purpose. You need courage. Now, ironically, as you live into that bigger purpose, you find courage. It goes on to say, and this was a neat image for me, verses 14 and 15 down at the bottom of the passage, as we read, he says, fear not, you worm, Jacob. You worm, you're like a little worm, right? But he says, behold, what I'm gonna do with this worm, I'm gonna make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth, and you shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. Now, what's the imagery here? God is saying, you might feel weak, There are all these people, all of those verses in the beginning, in front of that, you know, there are all these people that are aligned against you. You might look at the world and think, we're losing. I mean, the darkness, you know, seems to be gathering for the first time in the history of our nation. Less than 50% of Americans belong to a church or a religious organization. feels like unbelief. Secularism is just running rampant across the land. But God says... It may seem that way, but you need to understand what I'm doing. He says, in the end, I'm going to use you to mow down all of the evil in the whole world. Mountains, he says. And mountains are representative of God's enemies. They're they're representative of the peoples that are surrounding them, that are threatening Israel and threatening God's purposes in the world. And he says... I'm going to make you the type of people that when you come up against mountains, they, the mountains, are reduced to dust at your feet. And the wind's going to come, and going to blow them away, and they won't be there anymore. And when when all of that happens, guess who will be still standing there? When the mountains have been reduced to dust and blown away by the wind, guess who will still be there standing? You and me. Isn't that cool? You with me? Do you see that? I mean, that, like, I, I marvel at that. Ray Ortland said this. He said, if that's true, if that is really what God is doing, then it means we should live out loud for God. And <laughs> I like that phrase. That we should live out loud. The kingdom of this world right now is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what Revelation chapter 11 says. And so I want you to see what God intends to do with us. If we can Learn to live unafraid or less afraid. God means for the mountains to give way before you and me. But have you forgotten who you are? Maybe that's why you're full of fear. But secondly, if you would live unafraid or maybe just settle for less afraid, not only do you have to commit to his mission, because in the mission you find your courage, but secondly, you have to confront your idols. G.K. Chesterton He said this, he said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in anything, but they begin to believe in anything. Very astute, I think, and so if you're afraid, consider whether it's because you put your hope in something other than God, something that is not God, and what's happening is is that thing you've been hoping in is now being threatened, it's now letting you down, and the result is fear. This is what we see here in the text of the unbelieving nations Beginning in verse 5, and it's why I wish I had had printed for you, but it says this The coastlands have seen and they're afraid, and the ends of the air tremble, and everyone helps his neighbor and says, Be strong. They're they're patting one another on the back. They're saying, Oh, it's not as bad as it's, you know, it's gonna be okay, right? And then it goes on The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Now, what this is, I need to explain all of this. What's happening here is these are unbelieving people. Who are worshiping idols, idols that the craftsmen have made that they've set up in their houses or whatever, whatever the case might be. They're worshiping these idols to help them not be afraid, and yet the idols are failing them. The idols are proving to be, you know, powerless against the things coming against them. The idols are, are have been shown to be a fake, and yet instead, their response, uh, instead of forsaking them, is to double down. What they do here is they they, they try to strengthen their idols by soldering them together i mean it's it's almost a humorous thing look at verse 7 they nail the idols down to planks of wood so that they won't topple over and then they try to convince themselves that it's going to be okay it's good it's good it's going to be okay They, they they comfort one another with with hollow words now it's a vividly humorous and also tragic image they are afraid but instead of turning to the lord they turn to their idols and in turning to their idols they only become more afraid Idolatry, Frederick Buechner wrote, is the practice of ascribing absolute value to things of relative worth. Now, you know, Tim Keller's written a lot about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, for example. Great book, you should read that. But he says an idol is a a good thing, like career, success, or love, material possessions, relationships, even family. It's a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. And then what our, our hearts then deify whatever this thing is as the center of our lives because we believe that It can give us significance and make us safe. And so Keller goes on to say this, and I want to quote him at length here because it's so good. He says, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from ancient ones. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. And we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, But when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve higher places in business and to gain more wealth and prestige. Now, those are hard words to read. They're blistering words, but important. truth is anything can be an idol, not just bad things, good things too, if they become too important. In fact, the greater the good, the more likely we are to become to the place to where we begin to create unrealistic expectations for that thing, to look at whatever it is, And to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes in it. An idol is anything that becomes more important to you than God is. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God does. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And we turn to these idols because we feel afraid. The problem is, is they don't take the fear away. They only increase the fear. And that is because they have no real power. They're constantly... Threatened, and so you know, you see this. I, I struggle with how many um examples of this to, to relate to you, but but if your kids, or if your relationship with your kids, or if your kids' well being or your kids' future success is an idol, <laughs> good luck surviving middle school and high school. That's all I gotta say. You won't sleep for six years because it feels like it's always in danger, it's always threatened. If it's financial security, well, who knows how bad the next market correction will be, right? So what's that going to do to you? See, at some level, we know this. We know how fragile these things are because we've experienced their fragility, but, but rebelliously, because we can't admit the truth to ourselves, we instead of forsaking them as we should when they prove to be powerless, we double down as an act of sin, a further act of sin and rebellion. Because there's a part of us that cannot abide the idea that we are not in control of our lives, that we are not, in fact, the one running the universe. There's a line later in Isaiah that says, a deluded heart, this is chapter 44, verse 20, listen to this, a deluded heart has led them astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, this thing in my right hand is a lie. The right hand is the the image of like, Whatever your strength, the strength of your life, whatever it is that you're, that you're using to kind of make life go. And he's saying, look, what happens to us when we give ourselves to idols is we become deluded in heart. And then we, when we cannot deliver ourselves, we do not even have the power to be able to look at this thing that we've been trusting in that is so obviously failing us and say, you know what? This isn't working. My life's not working. What am I going to do? I've got to figure something else out because what I've been trying is not working. And we can't admit the truth about our idols. But if you're afraid, the very first thing you have to do is just ask this. Is there something that has become too important to me? Is there something that I'm telling myself that I have to have? Is that why I'm so scared? Because whatever that is, it's become threatened. It's being threatened. Something that I think is a necessity and is not. And if you find something, if you drill down enough to say, okay, too much of my heart has been taken up with this. Too much of my hope, too much of my happiness rests upon this thing, whatever it might be. And if you find it, when you dig down and find it, you have to say, this thing in my right hand, this thing that I have, that I have grabbed hold of and I am using to make me feel strong and make me feel okay and make life go, this thing, this thing that I'm looking to for strength, this thing that I'm hoping in for comfort, this thing that I'm trusting in, this thing that I'm obeying, it's a lie. It cannot save. Don't strengthen it. Don't double down. Don't. I mean, isn't it, don't nail it down on planks of wood to reinforce it. Don't say, well, no, okay, no, it's not been working, but it's because I've been doing it wrong. So let me figure out another way to serve this thing that I've been serving. Maybe I've not done enough. And if I do better, then it really will work out in the end. No, don't do that. God's saying here, no, what you do is you don't nail it down, you forsake it. And you do that by doing a number of things. And this could be a 45 minute talk in three sentences here. So bear with me, but you do it by, by you you name it. You say, this is the thing. You you, you call it out. You say, I've been trusting in You know, I've been looking to the happiness of my children for my own happiness. I've been trusting in my my success at work for feeling okay about life. You name it, and you admit the truth of it to it about yourself. You say, this thing, I'm realizing now, it can't take away the fear. It's actually what's making me afraid. And then you turn away from it, and you turn to Jesus. And that's the last part that I want to show you is that when... When you do this, if you want to live unafraid or if you just would at least settle for being less afraid, then you have to not only commit to God's mission, but also confront your idols that are taking you off mission, but thoroughly comfort your heart with God's promises because idols can't be removed. They have to be replaced with God himself because this is a worship problem. So the text in Isaiah 40 ends... After he goes through the whole process here, it ends in verse 16 where he says, And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. So repentance and rejoicing go together. And the rejoicing is crucial because, as we've already said, idols are almost always good things. And so if your kids have become an idol, you can't stop loving your kids. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. If your kids have become an idol, you've got to learn how to love Jesus so much more. So that in loving your kids, you're not enslaved by your attachment to them. And here's the news that I've been sent with this morning. Jesus' love is better. Okay, that should have gotten some response. Okay? You cheer for the kids when they come up here because they're cute. But, like, that should, we should erupt in cheers over that. I'm not I'm Don't do that now. It's past. You've ruined the moment. Don't try to make up for it now. I'm just saying. Jesus' love is better. And here's my argument. I obviously need to argue this out with you because it wasn't right there on your heart when I said it a minute ago. So let me argue it out with you. Every, every idolatry is a form of moralism. By that I mean this, that every idol that you might choose to serve says this, you serve me, you your life for mine, you die for me. And the idol makes promises, but then it turns around and demands that you do all the work. So if it's an idol of business success, again, not to harp on things I've already talked about, then you have to exhaust yourself and put in the late hours. If if money is the thing that makes you feel safe, then you'll overwork and overextend yourself. If it's your kids, you'll strive to be the best parent you can, and you'll stay awake at night regretting all the things you did wrong that day and worrying about all the things you might do wrong tomorrow. But in whatever the case might be, feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders because you can never be sure it's enough. It might be going well right now, but... You can't be sure that it won't fall apart. All of it fall apart tomorrow because you're one big mistake away from losing it all. And so there's no guarantee and you can never feel safe. You can never settle in. You can never rest for a single moment. All you can do is do what these people here are doing. You double down. You start nailing down your idols to make them stronger as soon as it seems to not be working. That's exhausting. So Jesus' says, love is better. <laughs> there you go. It it's still, it didn't make up for it. I'm sorry, but good try. Good try. No, no. Praise God. That's good. And here's why Jesus' love is better. Because idols demand. Idols make demands. Your life for me. You serve me. You die for me. But the gospel is grace. God says, my life for you. I serve you. I will die for you. In fact, just that. Jesus Christ told his followers, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he proved it by dying on the cross for the sins of the world and being raised to make every promise of God a sure thing. And his love for you is better than any other love because you don't have to earn it. You don't have to keep being worthy of it. You don't have to work hard to make sure that you don't lose it. God's love for you has nothing to do with you. He loves you for Jesus' sake. You don't have to build out your own righteousness. You're righteous in Christ alone. And So the key to dismantling the idol structures in your life is to rest and rejoice. If the problem with the idolatry is that it works righteousness it's moralism, then the key to dismantling the power of an idol is to be resting and rejoicing in Jesus because the gospel's grace which means the promise the promises of God are not conditional. They don't depend upon you. You don't have to be listen to this because I've seen this. People will say I'm like yesterday was national daughter's day and I, I saw a couple of people say things like I'm believing such great things for my daughter can I tell you you don't have to be believing the promises of God for them to come true for your kids that believing can be a work of righteousness that you're trying to do so that it, oh it count, so it's not my doing I can't do it but I've got to believe that God can do it no the believing of it doesn't even make it happen that's just another form of moralism all of God God's promises come to you not as a demand but as grace and that goes for the promise That God makes over and over again here and throughout Isaiah 44 excuse me 41 through 44 where he says for example in verse 10 fear not for I'm with you be not dismayed for I'm your God I will strengthen you I will help you I will uphold you by my righteous right hand here's the antidote to fear this truth you ready God is for me now this is not very Presbyterian but can we say that together God is for me rather ready God is for me. Let's do it again. God is for me. Okay, listen to this. God, God is for me. God, the I am, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, who spoke galaxies into existence with a word, who knows the stars by name, the one who parts the sea and raises the dead. God, the rock, faithful, just, abounding in steadfast love, who waits to be gracious and exalts himself to show mercy. God, is for me God is for me it's not like he was for me but not anymore not he will be for me maybe I hope if I can figure it out get my junk together in the future he is at this very moment in whatever I'm going through good or bad even when I can't see him or sense his presence He's here right now, he sees, he cares, he's always at work, he's always working, he's always saving, even when I can't see when and how and who and how it's all gonna happen. God is for me. God is for me, specifically me. No offense, but not you. (laughs) No, you too, but I'm talking about me right now, okay? Me. Not my parents or my siblings, not the good people, me and all my mess, as I am today, right here, right now, not the me that I should be, not the me that I'm trying to be, not the me that I want to be, not the right me, the real me. God is for me. He loves me. God is for me. God is for, I skipped one. God is for me. All that he is and all that he does is mine, and I am his. He's my God. He's decided about me. His heart is turned towards me, and it cannot be turned back. He is for me, not against me. He's not angry with me. He's not tired of me. He's not frustrated with me. He's not ready to give up on me. The momentum of the whole world is flowing toward my ultimate good because God is for me. 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 And I know this, and you can know it too. Know it in a way that it causes you to live unafraid because Jesus Christ has come into the world. And remember what his name was? His name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because Jesus Christ, God with us, was and is the embodiment of this promise, his life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and his place at the right hand of God the Father. And in all of that doing, All of his promising is secure. And so the opposite of fear, which this passage is pointing us to, is what he calls us to in verse uh, 16 at the end. The opposite of fear is rejoicing. So rejoice. That's what we're called to do this morning, to rejoice. Now that doesn't mean we pretend to be happy when we don't feel happy. Rejoicing is what you do when you don't feel the way you should. It's part of... The process of overcoming the power of our idols to look at them and say this thing in my right hand it's a lie and then to let go of them and then guess what and then to grab hold of Jesus and say this is the truth. This is the truth. And to keep saying it, because if you're like me, you're dense, and you got to say it over and over again. So you keep saying it, and you keep reminding yourself of it. And when you forget, you get around other people who can remind you of it when you forget it. And you come to church, and you sing about it with everybody else, and you do everything you can to keep reminding yourself of the truth until you begin to believe it and to live like it's true. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. So rejoice. Sing along with the hymn writer when he says... In him the helpless church shall trust. Of him shall sing, of him shall boast. On him cast all their care. He is their God, and they shall know what his almighty power can do, nor death, nor danger, fear. Amen. Pray with me. So, Father, what amazing good news. How how amazing that we gather week after week to just rehearse together together the good news and uh, there's, it never gets old. There's so much good news. There's so much bad news in the world that I just get exhausted by it. But I marvel this morning at the thought that there is so much good news for us that we can come week after week and just say the same thing over and over again. What amazing, wonderful news to know that you indeed are for us. And so help us, help us to turn towards you. Some of us uh, in the room, we might never have done that like the kids did this morning to stand before people and say, I believe, I want to believe in a God like that. I believe, I know my life. I need to put my life in the hands of a God like that. And if that's you, then we would say, Come, believe, trust in Jesus. Look at that thing that's been in your right hand and say, You've been lying to me. And grab a hold of Him. Because He's the way, the truth, and the life. But for many of us, yet again this morning, Just like we did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and all of the days of our lives, we need to, in this moment, say, confess, Father, we've been living according to lies. We've we've trusted in lies. We have put our faith in things that cannot save. Forgive us. How foolish of us. When your heart is so obviously made clear over and over again in your word because you would desire for us to come to you and say, here I am. My love's better than anything else you'll find. As the psalmist says, your love O Lord is better than life. And yet we continue to run. But what great news again that as we run, there is mercy and goodness that is chasing us. If we would just stop and turn to you. And so just in this quiet moment, Father, would you help us? Help us to think about our lives and say, what is it? What is it in my right hand that I've been trusting in? But you think about that for a minute and then look at that thing and say you've lied to me you and I we've had a good run but it's over <laughs> and then in your heart turn to him rejoicing not because you feel everything you should feel but as the road to feeling what you should feel and then as we sing lift your voice as an act of repentance and returning and resting and trusting in the only one who saves in the only one who's worthy and the only love that is worth giving your life to god is for you believe it and sing it we pray in jesus name amen, amen. okay okay settle down no no <laughs> I should clarify one thing. Uh, if you are committed uh, to holding on to your idols, for God to say he's for you means that he's against that. Right? For him to come against you in that effort. So don't, don't be shocked if you feel that and, you, and it makes you wonder, wait a minute, what, what about all this stuff? Because he is, he, him being for you means he's committed to thwarting you in your attempts to nail down your idols. But if you would turn to him in faith, whether even it's just a little faith, then he, then he comes running. And that's what this benediction means, that we go being sent on mission now, but not in our own strength. We go with the promise that he goes with us and that nothing we encounter, not even our own rebellious hearts, not even our own stubborn insistence to pull away from him can separate us from his love. And so receive this benediction and promise. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, may the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. God bless you. Go in his peace.